All right. Well, I'm talking to a new man here. I don't even recognize you. I don't recognize myself. Are you, you sure you're still Matt Longo? I'm covered in milk. Uh, <laughs> covered to head to toe in milk. Um, I think my daughter sometimes wishes that I was made of milk. Uh, I would be more, even more useful to her than I am at the moment. But uh, yeah, so I am a dad. I'm a dad now. Proud papa. I'm a pr- I am very proud. I'm so proud of her. I've not been more excited for um, like someone shitting than I <laughs> oh, am God. now. Like there are things like that where it's just like I never thought I'd be like this is excellent, fantastic. Like you shit today. You did a good shit. Uh, these are the things that excite me now. That's me on the podcast, sharing a song with something to say about it with Finn Lear and Niagara Moon losing my opinion so I do think that this will affect the podcast like probably the the kind of content that I'm going to bring to the table Uh, so everyone could be very excited for for that you're going to be like, yeah, that's a cool point. But can we get back to talking about stinky diapers? <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I actually, I had a great time. Um, oh, should we introduce ourselves first? All, all I've said is that I'm a dad. <laughs> you are a dad and you people are also... Need to, <laughs> people, that's all they need to know about me yeah. is that I, you can call me dad. All right, dad. Uh, my name is Thomas Irwin, a.k.a. Niagara Moon. And I'm talking with Thin Lear, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Matt Longo, a.k.a. Daddy. Okay, daddy. Can I, now, how does it work? Like, can I call you daddy now? Uh, if you'd like, you know, it's very funny. Like in the hospital, um, the, like the the hospital staff, they all called me daddy, um, <laughs> and and I I think it's because there are so many couples in there, you know, that they're sort of just they're not going to remember everybody's name. So, but when they called my wife mommy, like it was less weird. Uh, but then I would be like walking in the down the hallway, they'd be like, "Oh, did daddy get his visitor pass today?" Uh, it was just like a very strange, it was always a strange interaction. Daddy, can you come yeah. here? Yeah, it was just oh, wow. a bit, it was uncomfortable for me to be ah. referred to in that way and just passing conversation. But okay. Um, but with yeah. me on this podcast, it's cool. But yeah, with like. you, yeah, it's totally normal in this context. Yes. Uh, so in the, in the spirit of me being a dad, uh, I'm bringing something to the table today, which I think we could very safely put into the category of dad rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that would be nice to nice to do and a good introduction back to the back to the podcast for me. So uh, I don't. We've never talked about this group before. I mean, I I feel like I could probably guess how you feel about them, but um, Fleetwood Mac. Okay. Oh. What are your feelings on on just to get it out of the way? What are your feelings on rumors? On rumors, I so obviously that album is ridic- ridiculously gigantic, um, and its stature. I wouldn't agree with its stature as one of the best albums of all time. You know, if you just judge it by commercial sales, but uh, a lot of the tracks on that album I do quite like a lot. There's a couple that I'm not as impressed by but uh you know overall i it's it's i don't the best you're going to get out of me with all my snarkiness is i don't think it's super overrated um secondhand news is a jam 
That's a great song. Uh, you Make Loving Fun is a jam. There's, okay. uh, there's some good stuff there. Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow is uh, annoying to me personally, but uh, okay. that's neither here nor there. It, yeah, it kind of got overplayed with the Clinton campaign, mm. too. It was like sort of ubiquitous. So we all know that record is like the ultimate FM radio yeah. album. You can't escape it. And I think with that, at the time, we're not talking about now, but at the time you get a fan base that comes with that record that is about as middle of the road as as can be. You know, as, as middle of the road as an audience can be, you get with that record. The Dreamers. So, sure, yeah. So I'm going to talk a lot today about Lindsey Buckingham. And just how weird this guy is. Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's an album that I want to talk about called Tusk. And I know there's a lot of feelings about it out there. Do you, are you aware of Tusk? All right. Am I aware of Tusk? Uh, so I just got to get it out there. Um, one of my favorite podcast episodes that I did on the Niagara Moon podcast before I kind of shut that down. One of, one of the last ones I did was with a uh, wonderful guy, Nicholas Kurgovich. We talked about Tusk for nine hour. Uh, so I would, I would say I'm okay. considerably experienced in that weird ass double album. <laughs> my, so my feeling about that record is it's just absolutely unfairly maligned. And it's essentially their it's their white album. Yeah. And, and my my hot take though mm-hmm. is that in terms of pure pure creativity, Tusk is a much stronger album than Rumors. Like by a mile. Mm. In terms of creativity. Experimentation. I mean, Rumors, yes. If we're talking about like which is a tighter album, like okay, right. Of course Rumors is a tighter album. It's a clean album. But Tusk is the album that allows and this is the other part of my argument that I, I think you probably will disagree with because I I feel like I know you now. Uh, this is the album that allows Fleetwood Mac to thrive today in indie circles because it mm. adds a rough hewn dimension to the band's legacy. And and regardless of how many millennials and Gen Z folks say they adore the songs on Rumors, I think they feel comfortable saying that because we know the band has that weirder dimension in their mm. catalog that doesn't come with a band like the Eagles. A group oh, that fuck the Eagles, no one... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're not seeing... The Eagles pop up on TikTok and millennials and Gen Z folks saying, I love this band. Why That's is that? because Don Henley will sue the pants off you. Don Henley will come after you. He'll come. He'll go after your family. Yeah. Uh, but they, the Eagles and, and bands like that, uh, the, those, those monsters of that era. Yeah, yeah. They don't have those albums like Tusk that give them that sort of um, that credibility, that artistic edge. Uh and beyond that, Tusk is just like, it's a legitimately great record. And it's, it's not just this left of center weird thing. Like there are songs on it that rival the production of Rumors that are like sit side by side with lo-fi ones that sound like they're like alt 90s tracks. And I think it's that fan base that we were talking about before that really give Tusk its unfair reputation because they released it to this public that was like, where are my FM radio hits? Uh, but I spend more time with this album now than I do with Rumors. There's just a whole lot more that is mysterious and challenging yeah. about it. So I want to play you uh, the coolest song on the record. It's that first that first tune there. By the way, what is Dad Rock? Uh, I don't really know. I mean, it's the, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think it's like of a certain... 
it's not just of a certain era. Like it's a, a style of music that I think is like guitar based. There's like a lot of solos, uh, probably like, um, maybe raspy vocals or something like it's, it's things that, um, a sound that I think you would equate with like John Mellencamp or something like that. Like it's, I don't know. It, to me, it has like a negative, a real negative connotation to it, but I, I don't know if everyone looks at it like that. I've heard, I've heard Wilco described as dad rock, which is like, don't understand or agree with like Yankee hotel Foxtrot. Like I can't imagine. Ooh. Is, it, is it the sound of, Hey, we can rock out, but we'll still be home on time. Maybe that's the sound. Maybe that's what it is. In which case, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what bands you put in that category. Well, I'm very excited to hear this track. Uh, looks like you're showing me the ledge. I love the ledge. I'm showing you the ledge. Here we go. Let's do it. so fast <laughs> doesn't this doesn't this remind you of uh like early i'm gonna pause it there <laughs> doesn't it remind you of like um early mccartney like when he was doing that like homegrown thing you could tell yeah 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 he was making it in the studio uh like you can hear he's just embracing being a weirdo he's embracing being a weirdo yeah but it's also a guy it's coming from a guy who uh was used to working in like a fantastic studios and with like engineers who were amazing. And like, you can hear in interviews with him from around this time that he had a clear resentment for the fans and a sincere desire to alter the direction of the band. Uh, and I bring up solo McCartney because it's a similar kind of position he was in, like coming out of this massive thing. He had a little studio in his house, was finding his way through new sounds and, and had this desire to sort of actively screw with, um, the legacy that he created up to that point. Yeah. And he's so well, melodically get, gifted. They're brilliant at making pop music. There's something they really enjoy about twisting your expectations or putting in something a little different, like remaining innovative while also being easy to listen to. And in the case of Paul McCartney, in the case of Fleetwood Mac, after releasing rumors, they had made so much money you know, that gets a lot of eyeballs on you. That gets a lot of people invested in you and wanting you to keep, right? Like, why would, we got a good thing going here. You're going to screw it up by, you know, getting all arty farty. Let's keep, let's (laughs) keep this train rolling. Keep, keep the money coming. And you're dealing with that unique, weird sort of pressure that I think only a few artists really end up experiencing. And you get this out of it, there's this, I mean, like, what what genre is this song? Like, it's sort of this country rockabilly feel. Uh, you there, you get the sense of like the, the influence of punk around that time, like right around the edges of the track. Like, it's obviously not like the Clash or whatever. But he he said at that time he was really into them. But this yeah. is like, I I mean, I know I'd be like murdered for saying this, but like the Clash and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols, 
they were not DIY. Like there's nothing about, I mean, the first Clash album is a little bit They just bit show up at a cheap studio. Okay, we're going to play our songs. All right, engineer, right. just do your thing. We don't know what's going on. We just show right. up and want to play. Like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones, like those, those bands are produced out the S. Like those records are really tight. Like there's nothing DIY sounding about those albums. The first Clash album, yes, I think you could make that case. But like this track, it's coming from Fleetwood Mac and it sounds more rough around the edges and DIY than anything on a Ramones album or any yeah. of the Sex Pistols official releases. Kind of consciously so, right? I think that's what, you know, either you spend a ton of money on the equipment and the process and the people or the money goes into giving you time to experiment. And even if you're just kind of yes. plodding along, you don't know what you're doing, you gave yourself enough time to land on the right thing, which you couldn't do if you're broke, like the Ramones just starting out, okay, we got a few days in the studio, go, go, go. And then we got to be back out on the road. So that that's where, I, again, the, the McCartney comparison is interesting there. Well, this is another thing that you're sort of leading me towards that we talk about a lot on this podcast. We'd love to talk about this on this podcast. Um, so one day we'll have to, uh, you know, go to therapy together and figure out why. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, like this idea of just throwing money at art and like what that results in, especially when you're dealing with really talented people and you give them access to everything. Like, what do you get? Uh, and this is a record that cost a million dollars to make, which uh, is insane. <laughs> and also like it cost a million dollars then. So like for inflation, what is that? Like uh, close to 4 million or something? Like who it's knows gonna, how much my money? nose is going to start bleeding. Right. And I'm sure their that. noses were bleeding too from the amount of cocaine that was in the studio. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, they were living in excess from the fallout of rumors, like having expensive meals in the studio. This is a record that could not be made again. It's like the most aesthe- expensive, aesthetically indie album ever made. It's the I, most I expensive a... <laughs> post-punk album ever recorded. <laughs> sure. Like, there's this amazing video on YouTube where um, Buckingham is in his home studio, and he's brought these that. Like, dry... You see, have you seen it? Yeah, he's like doing push-ups in his bathroom and shit. <laughs> he loves yes. the, the tiling That's in his the bathroom. Video. I would and... encourage... Yes, I, I encourage all of our uh, listeners to go watch that on YouTube. Like he, he has these dry tracks... And he's, he's come from the expensive studio. He's playing them through speakers in his bathroom and he's hung a mic in there and he's going to then record that, bring in those treated tracks back to the expensive studio. Like that's just like, uh, it sort of reminds me, uh, you know that band Youth Lagoon? Um, they had that album, I think it's called Year of Hibernation. And he was talking about how he wanted it to sound like sort of far away and recorded uh, through a speaker, like mic the speaker away from himself in a garage somewhere to like get the ambiance of that. Like this is a very DIY experimental thing to be doing on the follow-up to the, at that point, the biggest selling album of all time. And like, how did the Eagles respond to hotel California? They tried to do hotel California too. How did Michael Jackson respond to thriller? You know, I'm going to go even bigger. Uh, this is not that. Uh, and I think it's probably really I would imagine difficult to steady oneself artistically after something that changes the culture. It's so big. Uh, and, and the response was just like, uh, pretty crazy. And I just, I don't think we'll get another record like this. It's, it's hard to imagine it from what you're saying too, like all the money 
that was thrown at it. Like how, how, how would this record turn out now? Would it even get to this point? You wouldn't have, I mean, really Tusk is to my mind, similar to the final cut, the Pink Floyd album where one member just like freaking took mm. over the band uh, and used it for their <laughs> right. own purposes yeah. w- with sort of not really getting permission to do so just like, you know, domineered. Um, and I love the final cut and I love Tusk because I love, uh, the music of the man who, you know, decided to do that. Like Buckingham was in this unique position to assert so much power and control over like a lot of the music on this album. And the short answer to your question is somebody like Buckingham, like they would never get anywhere near this amount of money in our current landscape. Like what? I mean, it's, it's all right. Not to sound like a cranky old man for a second, but it's like it's some guy in Sweden who writes all the songs for like all the top artists. And right. then it's every it's the same group of dudes who produce stuff on a computer. And then if you're anybody who's significantly rich or famous, you just, you know, you do you have your little part of this other machine going on. Like there's no one individual would get would be allowed that much freedom and control if you were at that by the time you're at that point. Right. That just that just doesn't happen in like right. That's the popular, capital P, popular music. But yeah, I mean, like obviously Fleetwood Mac bringing this to the label must have terrified oh, everyone. Yeah. And to the glee of Buckingham talking about, I, lo- I would have loved to be a fly on the wall when, uh, you know, whatever record company first checked it out and realized how, quote unquote, uncommercial it was actually. Right. right. Yeah. It's just sad. It's sad to think like, would it, yeah. Like if if one of those artists did want to sort of break free of the confines of what is expected of them, would it get to that point? Because then it was sort of like, all right, let the let the artists work, and then they would look. The record label, I'm sure, was like maybe a little up their asses, but you know they would wait to see what it sounded like. I don't know if it works the same today. I don't know if you'd be given that amount of time to come back to them with something this weird. Like they would sniff around probably before that point. Yeah, because you wouldn't, like I was guessing at before, I think you're just one part of a bigger machine when it comes to, you know, what you're hearing in those songs, like what's on these albums. All right, so let's listen now to, this is my favorite tune on the record. This song is like, I don't know why it wasn't a hit. Uh the first time I heard it, I think I listened to it like four times in a row. It's just a perfect song. A perfect uh, and it song. And really, it could have been on Rumors. I think I would call this a perfect song. Yeah, it's a perfect okay. pop tune. You only get to say that 10 times on this podcast, that a song's perfect. This is, this is number one. I think I, I say it probably, <laughs> I think every time I'm talking about something positive on the podcast, I probably say something. But there's a lot of perfect songs out there. And this, okay. this is one of them. All right, all right. Okay. Let's let's do it up. Great hook. So nice. Like, how is this different than the songcraft on Rumors? Except for the the production yes i love the drums on tusk so much like between what's actually being played and how they like treated the sounds it's 
as, as pretty special. I think that's the main difference is how they're pushing and like making those more familiar sounds like a snare or a kick or like a guitar. They really make them weird. I think that that's what mostly sets this album uh, distinctly yes. apart from Rumors. Oh, that guitar is beautiful. I mean, he's just like such an amazing guitar player. Uh, and he does that like Yoko Ono thing um, <laughs> partway through the tra- yeah partway through the track he starts doing that and yeah the drums have that uh, almost like um, uh, like Mo from Velvet Underground like in their intensity and simplicity of just like sort of bashing it uh, yeah it's just it's just fantastic uh, like if so going back to my initial point which I barely remember what it was <laughs> if this if they had done rumors too. I don't think we'd be talking... We, we might be talking about Fleetwood Mac as a two-album band. Basically, the self-titled mm. and Rumors. Hmm. You know? And, and we might be talking about them in a way that we talk about like AOR or like, um, you know, Bread or something like that. Like they might be sort of... Not that anything wrong with Bread, but like that they'd be relegated to that like pristine committee sound. And I think the fact that they are able to... Fleetwood Mac sort of resurface as this like witchy interesting band part of it is tied to tusk and i know we talked a lot about buckingham today but like christy mcvee's tracks are fantastic mm-hmm. um stevie nicks's tracks is fantastic on this album too i mean the reason we're talking about buckingham is because that weirdness was coming from him and he sort of sprinkled it on those on their songs too like you listen to a song like think about me which is is a, a mcvee song that that could have been on rumors and then Buckingham's just like playing weird shit <laughs> over the top mm-hmm. of it, getting increasingly more all over, all over the place way. And then you get a song like Storms, which is like a perfect Stevie Nicks kind of song that only she can conjure. And the production, though, is like really quote unquote indie, where it's just like you hear this bass and guitar popping out of the mix. Uh, it's just his, his, weird, his weirdness over, hangs over the whole record. Uh, and it's just a really special album that I think gets an unfair, uh, an unfair perspective on it. But I think that's changing now. In maybe you know n- newer, uh, 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 younger folks are looking at it and saying there's something worth listening to here. Yeah, I mean Buckingham's the man. I mean he's he's personally my favorite member out of the group. Although I mean McVie has some great songs. Steven Nicks has her moments. Uh, Dreams is a classic. Uh, and this was a window where he really got to take a lot of control. And you can see it just in the number of songs that are explicitly written by him. And then how he's even able, like his influence spills over into the music of other members of the band. And then yeah, after this, you got Mirage, which is a lot more middle of the road. I, there's a I little bit, that a little bit on Mirage that I'm I'm down with, mainly just the McVie stuff because she's she's always consistent. And then yeah, they're they're pretty garish by the time you get to Tango in the Night. That's unlistenable for me. Tell me lies, yeah. tell me sweet little lies. Yeah, that's right. that's definitely a product first and foremost. Um, yeah, Tusk is is very unique. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Yeah, it, it seems like they snapped back into place after this, where it was like, okay, like we got a lot of parties bad. over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bad criticism there. But uh, uh, Mick Fleetwood actually says this is his favorite album of theirs. So he shines think, the most in this one for sure. Oh, he does. His drumming is so nice. 
But anyway, I think I've gone on enough about this album. I will say one last thing. There's a, a Camper Van Beethoven cover of this album. It's like front to back cover. It's really interesting and worth listening to. Um, and it's also fun to read if someone has no life uh, to read the reviews of this record from when it came out and then compare them to the sort of reappraisals that have come out recently. Like I love doing that when, when critics like so obviously screwed up. Uh, oh, you get that you know, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get, you have websites like pitchfork or whatever that do like, they'll put out a, a review of an album and then like five years later, they'll do a reappraisal when they realize they messed it up. Like it's such a quick, like a real time thing of like course correction for music mm-hmm. criticism. But uh, Mojo called this record the greatest career sabotage of all time. And I think... Oh, that's so clickbaity. It's very clickbaity. Mm. And it's only true in the short term. Because I think yeah. in the long term, as I said, I think this is the thing that keeps them alive with younger folks. This kind of sound. Gives them that extra dimension. Yeah. Where otherwise they would just be firmly in Eagles territory. Not that those guys have ever hurt for money or fame. But, <laughs> yeah, those poor guys um, in the Eagles. Yeah. yeah. This Tusk, Tusk is awesome. Um, so if that's what I was supposed to agree with or not, um, I forget what your original point was, but it's okay. Cause you're at <laughs> your daddy. Um, I, I agree that, uh, people should check out the entirety of Tusk if they have not already. So in other words, you agree with daddy. I agree your... with daddy. Okay. Daddy that's knows all I best. to hear. Yes. That should be my new catchphrase for when I don't remember what my other catchphrase that's is. That's the f- First T-shirt for this podcast <laughs> is Daddy Knows Best. Daddy Knows Best. And it's just a big picture in my head. All right. So, Ooh, Thomas, what do, you, what do you have for me today? I'm looking forward to uh, yeah. listening to a non-Tusk track. Yep. Uh, this, is, this one's a long time coming. Um, Uh-oh. I'm not even, like, necessarily the most excited to talk about this. Uh, there's op- other episodes. Always a good that, way to start. <laughs> Always a great way to start yeah. a topic. Well, there's other episodes that I would probably enjoy doing more personally, but this is like this is my PSA. Like I'm I'm doing like public service for this one. We just we have oh, to. Wow, so it's like we a have health, to set. This is like a okay. Yeah, people need to know. Like I just got to set the record straight here. This is uh, part of my duty. This is like a like a root canal. This is like the the podcast equivalent of a root canal. Yeah, you know it's uh, we've been putting it off for a while. I think we just best get it over with. Um, and, uh, the very, the very rough draft, the sloppy version that I since refined of what I'm putting forward today is greatest American songwriter. So you hear those three words, who are you thinking? Who do you think I have in mind? Um, greatest American songwriter. Let's, let me think about that. Probably not. I mean, I don't think you'd say Randy Newman. I know you like him a lot. Um, all right, all right, all right. Well, so the final draft of the, the more carefully thoughtful way to say this is greatest American pop recording artist of the 20th century. That's got to be Paul Simon, right? Whoa, okay. That's, that's, a, huge, that's a huge sentence right there. It's got to be. Okay. There's a lot of reasons that we'll get into of why I feel that way, but uh, I will admit okay. I'm, gi- I'm giving – a lot of credit to longevity and like vers- versatility, eclecticism. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like Paul Simon is just on every level like my favorite artist and the one I always want to listen to all the time. It's I'm, if you take in the depth and the breadth 
of what the guy did in his prime and how long that prime was, I just, I, I find it undeniable. But uh, I will say, like, full disclosure, I don't, um, I, there's, a, there's a point with him where I just sort of stopped, uh, I haven't investigated. Mm-hmm. Like, I think after, like, maybe Rhythm of the Saints or something like that, like, whatever the record is after Graceland, I think I sort of, I don't know well. And, and it, but every time I hear something, uh, I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, that's very interesting. Uh, and then I sometimes go back to it. Like, you know, that record he made with Brian Eno. Like, I, I, every time I hear something new from him, uh, I like it. But I can't say I I've, I've know it, like, front to back the way I do his career up until through, you know, Graceland, Rhythm of the Saints. You and me both. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. with, I mean, without getting into too much more, I, I do want to play a song that uh, it's from Rhythm of the Saints from 1990. So this guy first came up okay. in like the early mid-60s. 1990, he made this banger. Uh, so if you want to open that link, we'll listen to a bit. I'm hearing drums. There's the little guy. like the sort of the obvious um, child this is the direction that so, yes this is the obvious child is what I'm gonna say this is like the direction that uh, you get to from like Cecilia or something like that So uh, that's an excellent point. I'll pause it there for now. Uh, totally agree. Uh, yeah, to my ears, I mean, first off, this just sounds like a victory lap after you've just been crushing it for like the last 25 years of just yeah. like awesome release after awesome release. Um, part of what I love about Paul Simon's music so much, and it's just only one facet because he's got a ton going on, but his ability to take in really exotic influences. And I mean, this is a discussion I'm barely qualified to have, but like I would say appropriately appropriate other musical traditions into Western pop music and make it all work and be really cool and new and still respectful to like the origins of the music that he's drawing from and that, 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 like, uh, he's he's unparalleled on that. Like nobody else could touch what he does on Graceland. Even well, there are like different. I mean, obviously there's there are really different opinions about 
what he's doing there on an album like Graceland or, or this one even more so in Rhythm of the Saints. Uh, and, and he was sort of dabbling in these sounds on as far back as like Bridge Over Troubled Water. Um, you know, there are tunes on there where he, he's, he's dancing around this. I mean, I, I think I think he's respectful the way that he does it because it's it doesn't seem he's not doing it in a way that's cheap. Like it doesn't feel like just straight up cultural appropriation and like him putting his face on it. It, it if you, you know, we are the, least, the two least qualified people to be saying that this is cool, but it just, it never felt to me like there was something malicious that was happening. Um, it did seem like it was coming from a place of love. And then out of it, you also get like, he was always himself with all of these styles. Like if you hear this tune, if you take away the arrangement, it's just a straight up Paul Simon tune. And if you played it on acoustic guitar, not in polyrhythm. Yeah, it's a, it's the same point of view and, and melodic cadence. And, right. Uh, you know, it's unmistakably him in just a new setting that he's perfectly had fine-tuned to match what he's doing. Clearly, his artistic muse drove him uh, to make Graceland, to make Rhythm of the Saints, and it's it's undeniably him and he's doing something that you're not going to hear if you just go directly towards the artist that he's working with. Like this is a new thing he's creating and doing a beautiful job I find. And, and also crazy to think he's pushing 50 and he's still experimenting on a pop album that sounds like rhythm and the saints and a freaking like, I love it. It's, it's more subdued and kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's more modest than Graceland cause it would have to be but it's uh, it's still a banger and it's he's we're in the 90s here this guy's a baby boomer you know i just for navigating the 80s as gloriously as he did just on that point alone again we're we're going towards best greatest american 20th century pop recording artist here right where that's just another feather in his cap but uh i mean buckingham is funny that you brought up lindsay buckingham i feel like he's one rare exception where even just like his, his latest record had a couple of songs. So I'm like, Oh, this is kind of, this slaps a little bit. This is fresh. Like this, I would not guess this guy is, uh, you know, in his seventies or whatever, but it's rare. And, uh, Paul Simon was always himself, was always yeah. doing something new, incorporating new, interesting influence. And we haven't, we've barely talked about what he did with the old mm. eraser head there, that whole run. From the sixties. Razorhead. Uh the boxer, that's like a that's a stop what you're doing and just like freeze kind of song. The frick the boxer. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding well, me? Well, so I'll tell you, I have a very special relationship with uh the album Bridge Over Troubled Water. I think it's it's one of my mm-hmm. top five albums. Uh I think that the I've been trying to approximate the production on that record for every release that I make where it's just sort of everything in the kitchen sink but like um carefully massaged into the tunes it it doesn't feel like everything in the kitchen sink and uh as a gift for when i finished my record wooden cave my wife got me that album on vinyl and i was sort of like purposefully withholding it from myself so i was like i'm gonna buy this when i finish this album and it was like a really moving moment so yeah, I I I love that record, and I, I I don't I won't say that I agree with that I agree or disagree. I think he is very obviously 
in the running and it's it's hard to it's hard to disagree i'll I'll say that all right well as far as in the running i mean it's just hard for me to to overlook dylan and i know well well, you know you know what i mean all right well let's 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 start going through the the fine points of my my revised statement here greatest american pop recording artist of the 20th century okay so american I mean, we're ruling out Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. You know, those meddling Brits. Leonard Cohen, yeah, Neil get Young. Get out of here. Yeah. You, you stinking Canadians. You're diff- different contest here. Exactly. Um, I said pop because I don't want to go down like the Miles Davis, John Coltrane right. rabbit hole. I'm not, talk- not, talking, about I'm not jazz. talking about those yeah. guys. I'm not talking about jazz. I'm not talking about Hank Williams, Woody Guthrie. I'm talking about recording artists because I don't want to get wrapped up in talking about the Gershwins or Irving Berlin oh, okay. or Rodgers and Hammerstein or Bob Dylan, because uh, I'm talking about recording artists. And Bob Dylan hates recording, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, he wants to get out of the studio as fast as possible. Even if he, but even if he hates it, still, we have the product. I mean, I think the argument you could make with Dylan is that his best period was clearly a shooting star-like period in the 60s it was very short through part of yeah. the 70s but even the 70s is sort of sporadic how good the albums are uh it's very confined but but it's it's really good yeah i mean again i love me some blood on the tracks but like i said earlier i'm, I'm giving a lot of priority i'm very biased for uh variety and longevity um, just in any given year in the second half of the 20th century, uh, X artist put out an album. Is it good? Chances are we're talking Paul Simon. Like it's, I can't think of anybody who really meets him on there, that. There's somebody that I, I would maybe say is number one, but I think there's a bunch of different like caveats to it. Uh, and it's, All right, what do you got? It's Sam Cooke. And I, I say ah. Sam Cooke, like there, there are things like, I mean, the songs that he wrote, like his best songs are brilliant, but obviously change is going to come. He, right. I mean, obviously though he didn't, he did have a lot of covers on records too. So if you're, if you're talking about like, um, you know, consistent songwriter, maybe not, but also his career was cut ridiculously short, tragically short. Um, yeah. yeah he could have been, he really could have evolved into a no brainer if, if yes, he, kept going yeah i he was agree just sitting astride yeah he's somebody who i maybe would put there and that's why i say like in the running like sort of like him paul simon dylan otis redding i think like those uh yeah otis redding was was cut so short too. And, and that's the problem is yeah <laughs> that's the problem yeah now you could say stevie wonder Oh, okay. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't d- disparage you too much with Stevie Wonder, but then you're, you're just talking about that run in the seventies, right? So it's very similar to the Dylan thing, where it's like, okay, so Stevie Wonder's album, be- classic album run, is like better than anything, but well, I have my own problems with it, but that's another episode, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh, that is a whole different argument that we would have, but yeah. like, so like that four or five album run is just like ridiculous but yes it's sort of confined there i mean he has some good stuff before that but i I don't know how much you could say after is at that level uh so it's very much like dylan i guess yeah it really um it really just comes down to who else is in we are the world (laughs) yeah who else yeah springsteen that's that's your cast neither of us have brought up springsteen 
So Springsteen was somebody else next. He was after Stevie Wonder on my uh, honorable mentions list. Interesting. Uh, I definitely I can get into the boss. I've I've had yeah. many an enjoyable time with his music, but it is he can do like three different kinds of songs tops kind of agree <laughs> like he's especially if you listen to the river it's like the Agreed. same three yes. kinds of songs three over different over kinds again. of songs in different permutations yeah. yes i agree completely yeah um, I, I don't think he's in the top uh of this conversation but uh you know if, if that's your deal like you know i get it I, I i'm not here to say that uh the boss isn't the boss he could kick my ass he could he could kick my ass pretty good even at like 70 but doesn't put him in the yeah. top five well so that's what I mean here, man. It sounds like uh, you know the the absence of a disagreement is is going to be an agreement here. Interesting. Interesting. He just he held out for so long um, and was doing so many cool new things, and then he just the the death knell is making that stupid uh, Cape Man Broadway musical. I don't know if you know anything about that. I know nothing about that. It sounds so. <laughs> It's like, uh, you know, he put out Rhythm of the Saints in 90, and then the next thing you see from him is in 97, he's got songs from the Cape Man, and uh, just the, the hubris caught up with him a little bit, like it's a pretty panned uh, Broadway musical. I tried it a little bit, but he's like, you know, he, he is singing from the perspective of like a Puerto Rican street gang member, and I'm like, okay. this is not your story to tell here, dude. Like, this is just... Any any criticism you want to throw his way, just throw it on the caveman. And then, uh, I don't know, by the time you get to the 21st century, he's uh, he doesn't hold my interest anymore. Okay. He sounds too... He just... I don't know. Don't you have that with every artist where they eventually they're just past their prime and... Uh, except for except for two. Uh, oh, yeah? David Bowie and Leonard Cohen, who, for me, like, kept doing great shit right up literally mm. almost for bowie like until his breath was leaving his body yeah yeah i know he's he's got his lazarus there yeah yeah um and also like heathen cohen what, what did cohen do at the end um you want it darker which i think is like maybe his heaviest record and just like <sighs> weird and beautiful mm. and i think even if you don't love black star and you want it darker like those records compete like they compete with what any indie artist is doing right now i mean in my mind they blow mm. it away but like they're, they're they're contemporary those are new sounds that they're doing whether you love them or you don't love them like they're pushing it they're pushing the boundary yeah i think i might just be ageist <laughs> and i don't like hearing old people sing all right oh, I, didn't, I didn't say that scratch that off the record so that's the opposite of that's the opposite of that scratch that off the record in any case both those people you mentioned are not american so Get him out of here. True. Uh, Very true. Paul Paul remains really, and he had he had this peak from you know the early days of Simon and Garfunkel, and up until at least in my mind, Rhythm of the Saints. I freaking love that solo uh, debut album, Paul Simon, where he's he's got his little cute parka on, like mm -hmm. that. Just so many songs from that take my breath away. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, but like Duncan. Great song. Yeah. And I, you know what I love about him is that his hair kept coming back. <laughs> you can't like you it, can't would, keep it would it would go down. away and then it would come back. You cannot you can't get rid of Paul Simon's hair. You know, he'll come out wow. looking like looking like a page boy for uh <laughs> the end of Simon and Garfunkel, and then all of a sudden it's it's full and it's thick, and then it's gone again, and then it's back and it's thick. 
He's a complicated man. Yeah, I'll tell you what. The, he's a consecrated boy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I'll tell you what he couldn't do is pull off a mustache. That's some no. rough stuff. No. That's the one big failure in his life. The other song I want to show you okay. um, is from the period people were kind of feeling like he was slipping a little bit. He had uh, One Trick Pony mm-hmm. uh, and Hearts and Bones, particularly Hearts and Bones, seemed to get some hate at the time. If it's guilty of anything, it's just a little soft. It's a little too kind of safe, and it has that sort of overproduced gaucho effect you were talking about from our uh, last episode. Mm-hmm. But even there, there's there's some amazing songwriting going on. And I wanted to talk about uh, Train in the Distance in particular. Okay. Do you know that one? I do not know this song. All right. Well, let's get in the party. So the overall theme and story of the song is pretty explicit. It's just his, his marriage isn't quite working out. There's a lot of Paul Simon songs like that. Like, oh, I guess things aren't going <laughs> to yes. work out. It's it's cool. Yep. I'm I'm yeah. the I'm the first to admit it, but I'm the last one to know. It's it's all right. That's his whole <laughs> demeanor there. But uh, you know, I'm not searching for hidden meaning there. But the chorus of this song, uh, we we can hear it, and then I'd I'd be curious what it means to you. I think it's just an ex- a perfect example of his, the, the, his. He can have multiple interpretations with what he does, and that's what I I love about him so much. Is his lyrics really open okay. up schools of thought. But uh, here we go, okay. train in the distance. Yeah, I could have started this later in the song. <laughs> she was beautiful as southern skies the night he met her. She was married to someone. He was doggedly determined that he get her he was old he was young from time to time tip his heart but each time she withdrew here we go everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance everybody thinks it's true everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance everybody thinks it's true I do not know this song. I don't know this album that well. Uh, this makes me want to listen to it. It's uh, It's got depth. I mean, there's a couple tracks that feel a little slighter to me, but uh, it's it's worth it. Yeah, it sits it's, it's nicely in the mid-'80s pocket there. I was going to ask you if it's um, an 80s record. Yeah. Um, I think it's like 83. And the one before that isn't as strong, but still kind of a curio, is uh, One Trick Pony, which uh, he also had a movie come out starring him around that's a little awkward uh but always a good idea yeah there's like that period in the early 80s especially where pop stars are like i'm killing it with music let me make a movie let me carry a whole feature length movie yeah (laughs) paul mccartney um oh man that's not good the best part of that movie and i can't find it on youtube anymore but like lou reed plays like a sleazy manipulative like record producer He's like trying to wrestle some more creative control. And Wait, in the pl- in the One Trick Pony movie. Okay, okay, that sounds worth watching just for that. Yeah, it's uh, it seems like an inspired performance. But <laughs> so we're talking about Train in the Distance. It's from the album after, but it's 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 the same like softer period before uh, he starts exploring uh, with world music. 
But yeah, everybody loves the sound of a train in the distance. Everybody thinks it's true. That's like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? Like, that's just like, mm. <laughs> you can just meditate on that for a while in my mind. But I like the production of it. I think he does. You're right in that he sort of, a lot of our favorite artists hit that like dog shit wall in the 80s of just everything sounding re- like the 80s and just really dated and cheesy. Uh, and it's, The producers took over. Right. It seems like he kind of sidestepped that a little bit because it still sounds like him. I mean, it's not so different production-wise from like Slip Sliding Away or or um, Still Crazy After All These Years or something like that where it's just like, you know, it's a little bit more sleek, but it's still very organic and, and heartfelt. Yeah, it makes me want to listen to that album. I, I sort of wrote it off. Yeah, well. Uh, Renee and Georgette Magritte with their dog after the war is uh, it's a, it's a nice one. Oh. I'm almost done. It's like five more minutes. Oh, I've got a whole piece. Thank you. It's nice to be fed. It is nice to be fed. That's a good, that's a good partner. All right, we'll wrap things up soon. But <laughs> she seems very nice <laughs> yeah. to you. Well, really, see, it's hard. <laughs> She's being nice by offering me jerky. And then also, it's been two weeks, so she wants to make sure it's like still good. Okay. So it's like uh, a little bit of a taste test little, situation bit, happening. Yeah, but tastes delicious. So if you if you keel over, it's not good anymore. That would be the metric. <laughs> well, all right. So I've gone in a million different places here. Excuse me while I chew this jerky. Basically, what you're saying is you you are you're taking my sort of uh, non-committal answer as an agreement on Paul Simon being the greatest American. Songwriter, which I, you know what, I'm okay with you okay. saying that. It doesn't All bother right. me. Well, if you think of anyone more appropriate, or if somebody listens to this, is like, hey, I actually listened to all the metrics you explained, and this person is better for this reason. By all means, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'll, Send us hate mail. I also said 20th century because, I mean, we can't let the baby boomers lord over us forever. We got some. We got to have new guard at some point. This this guy for its his time, he was the best in this very narrow right. category I put forward. Um, and that is uh, that's that. I love love the music of Paul Simon, and I I figured you'd be a big fan as well. Oh, I am. I love it. It also reminds me of childhood too, because I feel like Graceland. You know, as a child of the '90s, I feel like I was hearing Graceland a lot around even though obviously it came out like earlier i i I think it was still popular around that time and i just sort of associate it with really nice sunny childhood memories yeah my uh let me chew the rest of this jerky my uh (laughs) former uh co-host on the old podcast dan barracuda called graceland uh a a beautiful blue sky it's a it's a clear sunny day it is uh, you murdered Dan, right? That's yeah. why I, st- I stripped him. You for started parts. the yeah, yeah the new podcast. His, his remnants right. are in the closet behind yeah. me. Yeah. Well, hopefully, the- hopefully, I might be able to reanimate sure. him I- to the point he might be able to participate in episodes again. That'd be cool. Well, I was actually hoping you wouldn't do that to me, but I guess we sort of wait and see. Yeah, we'll see what happens to Daddy. Let's we'll see how often I agree with you. Yeah. Well. All right, so are we ready for our catchphrases? Well, are we ready to share what we've learned? Oh, um, I learned that you have already done a podcast on Tusk, and I feel very <laughs> humiliated and ashamed. 
but I also still love that record and think that um, it's the most expensive, expensive, aesthetically indie album ever made. And that if they didn't make it, I don't think we'd be talking about Fleetwood Mac to the mm. same degree and in the same way. Tight. I think they'd be in Hotel California territory. And I learned that... Uh, uh, that the jerky is bad. <laughs> And it's affecting your brain. Who are you? <laughs> all right. Well, uh, what do you what do you got to say for yourself to wrap all this up? Say for myself, um, I'm in love with my daughter. I uh, am sort of over the moon with how much I love her, and it, it's 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 affects everything that I do now. It's like I think about her so much, and I think I put on Tusk uh like by accident and she responded to it because she gets like really pumped up if she hears something that she likes and then i was like all right i'm gonna do the podcast about this now so uh future alma uh decisions will be made all right for the ensuing podcast is what i'm saying yes and then you're also supposed to say oh and my pot my uh catchphrase now uh, is uh daddy knows best (laughs) and he does he really does yeah what's your catchphrase again my catchphrase again well you know it's good that you agree with me i'm i that's that's a a solid win (laughs) because i was gonna say it'd be it'd be rough if you didn't we'd have a problem because i could be wrong now but i don't think so oh i hate it so much and i feel like that brings you joy Oh, most, most indubitably. (laughs) That's it. Thank you for listening. And as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, give a like, uh, whatever you got to do. We always appreciate it. And we'll see you next time.